Good morning, Three Rivers Church. If you would, join me in prayer and then we'll get after it. Father, we give thanks to you today for your great grace to us. And Father, we uh, by faith receive all the good that you have for us today. For you tell us in your word that all of it for us is yes in Christ Jesus. And all of your promises are yes in Christ. So we pray that right now by help of Holy Spirit, you'll help us to take grasp of that by faith. Trust in you and uh, pray, Lord, that you would do exceedingly abundantly in this time uh, more than I can even imagine through your word. May it be a lamp for our feet and light for our path. May you transform us, cause us to walk closer with you. Give us eyes that see and ears that hear, hands and feet quick to respond. We pray in Jesus name. Amen. Well. Isaiah chapter six, verse one through eleven. We're continuing our series in worship. Uh, and today we're working through Isaiah six, one through eleven as a framework, a framework for being a living sacrifice, a framework for being a living sacrifice. So uh, I'm going to read the passage, then we're going to launch right in. OK, Isaiah six, one to eleven. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. And the train of his robe, I'm sorry, on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. One called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me. For I'm lost, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. The one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. And he said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy. Blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. And I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until the cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land of desolate waste. Remember, we've defined worship as uh, this is our working definition. It's not the working definition. It's a good working definition. And again, from Dr. Bruce Leafblad, uh, taking this definition from Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, my alma mater. And, uh, and, and so here it is. Worship is communion with God in which believers by grace center their minds, attention, their hearts, affection on the Lord, humbly glorifying God in response to the revelation of his glory and his word. Right. And so that's our working definition. And remember, we've majored on worship, not as the song we sing, but as the life we live, because we're told in Romans 12, 1, that worship is a living sacrifice. Right. It is, it is, it is laying down everything while remaining alive. And so we can't get to the musical component of that until we've dealt well with Romans 12.1. We're actually going to exegete Romans 12.1 here coming up soon, not this week. But Romans 12.1 as a life lived has a flow to it. A flow, a pattern, a liturgy, if, if, if you like that word. 
the life of a living sacrifice has a liturgy. It has a flow. It has a rhythm. The service that you are currently involved in should have a flow. It should have a rhythm. It should have a pattern. The reason is because this service should be filled, ideally, with people who are living sacrifices, who are living in a flow and a pattern and a liturgy. And so as a consequence, on the back side is some application. We'll take a look at our order of service, which from the time we started Three Rivers Church in March will be 15 years ago. We have intentionally had our order of service look like it, it does precisely because of this pattern and this flow. And negligence right here for not teaching. Some of you guys, we talked through this maybe 10 or so years ago. And not everybody who's here was here 10 or so years ago, right? And so you're like, I have no clue. And so negligence here for not teaching that. But this morning you're going to know. Because how you come in and engage is not to be separated from the life you live outside of here. Because your life is to be a pattern and a flow, a liturgy. And what we learn from Isaiah 6 is what that looks like. Isaiah 6, 1-11 gives us this pattern and this flow in the personal example of Isaiah the prophet as God intersects with him at this particular phase of his life and his country's life. And if God interacts with his people before the life, death, burial, resurrection, ascension of Jesus and the sending of the Holy Spirit, how much more does he interact in such a pattern today? I would argue more so. And we must learn this pattern. This pattern that you're going to see in Isaiah 6, 1 to 11 is a pattern of revelation and response. Revelation and response. God reveals. God makes himself known. And then the creation and the creatures respond to God. God reveals. He makes himself known. We and created order respond to him. As a matter of fact, C.S. Lewis, who if you don't share our doctrinal distinctives as a more reformed leaning church, even C.S. Lewis uh, in the silver chair has Aslan speak these words. If you've been here long enough, you know I'm, I'm, a, I'm a just fan, right? And so C.S. Lewis would hate our doctrine. So, you know, we did his bi- biography a few years ago. He would hate our reformed doctrine. But even Lewis recognized this. When he put these words in Aslan's mouth in the silver chair, you would not have called to me unless I had been calling to you. And the reality is you see this pattern all through the Bible. God speaks, his people and created order simply respond. We come to Isaiah 6 verse 1 to 11, a little bit of the background very quickly to set it in its context. Is that Israel is in the downslope of its time and it's in the shadow of this Awful people called Assyria and this oncoming power. Uzziah, who was a pretty good king, had become prideful and he had walked into the temple and taken on the role of priest as opposed to king. Because there's only one prophet, priest and king, and that's Jesus. And so here comes this mere man who is now prideful into the temple to take on the role of priest. And God struck him with leprosy. So he spends his final days in the shadow of the Assyrian Empire dying a slow death. In Isaiah chapter 6 verse 1, God reveals himself to the prophet Isaiah. And he does so in such a manner as to set Isaiah's heart in the right place, his attention in the right place, and his affections in the right place. And so we pick up 
Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. And this is the first component of this pattern. Remember, the pattern is revelation, response, revelation, response, right? Here's where Isaiah 6, 1 starts. In the year that King Uzziah died, right? So, important point. In this time and period, when a king dies, a nation is particularly vulnerable. Because I don't know if you read your, your Old Testament, but every time a king dies... All manner of chaos breaks out, right? Internally, externally. And so when a king dies, this is a serious time in, in, in their history. They've got this, this nation, Assyria, who's bearing down on them. Uzziah is a leper, and he's dying. And in the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah says, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. God reveals himself to Isaiah. And what Isaiah gets to see is the truth of who really the king is. Who the real king happens to be. Isaiah's eyes are here. It's on man. It's on his country. It's on invading nations. It's on political envoys. And he's worried. And the message is harsh that he's been delivering. And in this year of instability... God reveals himself as the one who sits on the throne. Uzziah may sit on a little throne created by men, but God put him there. And the real throne is the throne that God himself sits upon and he rules well. And so God reveals himself as the one who brings stability. God reveals himself as the one who is in power. So regardless of Uzziah's death or life... I have nothing to do with who they are and where they're going. That's in God's hands, not Uzziah's hands. And so in the year that he died, God shows this vision of the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up. And so we see here God reveals himself. And this is just one little example of this pattern all through the Bible. God reveals we respond. God reveals His presence here. God reveals His person. Notice this is God in human form sitting on a throne. Who might this be? This is the pre-existent eternal Christ. Because Jesus did not come to be. That's a heresy. Jesus is the eternal creator of all things. Colossians 1, 15, 16, and 17, right? By Him all things were created and all things were made. And in Him all things hold together. Jesus. So here He is, the eternal Christ, the one who walks in the furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who looks like the Son of God. Jesus sitting on His throne, ruling well. God reveals His power. He reveals His purposes. He reveals His plan. And so I think it's important to know something here. And I put this in the notes. If you're looking for notes, it's MitchJolly.com. And they're the first notes available. And you can see here, I say continuous in parenthesis. Because God's revelation isn't spotty. We get caught up in, and I need to see you. I need to hear from you. And it's not that God is silent. And it's not that God is hidden. It's not God's problem. It's ours. God isn't silent and He's not hidden. He's constantly revealing Himself. He has built it into created order. He's built it into His Word. These are a few examples here, and i got to move quickly through this. Um, God reveals Himself through His Word. He does it through ordinary means of grace that are built into creation. And especially, He also does it through the church, which is His body. We read in, in 2 Timothy 3, 14 and 15 that it is the Scriptures that make people wise for salvation. It's what leads people to faith in Jesus. Amen. The Bible is able to lead people. It's special revelation. We see in Psalm 19, verse 1 to 2. 
that created order can point people to the reality and truth of God speaking. It cannot save you. But it speaks. Psalm 19, 1-2 says, The heavens are declaring the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech. Is God silent? You need to be able to answer that question. No, He's not. It just said in the text, He's talking. His created orders, yelling His glory. And day and day pours out speech. So in created order particularly, let me say this. For you as a follower of Jesus Christ, if you're in Christ, you have eyes to see. Those outside of Christ don't have eyes to see. The Bible describes them as blind toward these things. If you're in Christ, you can see this. And so if you're in this place where you feel like God's silent, go outside at night and look up. Just look up. And you will see and you will hear the glory of God from ages and ages away whose light was put out thousands of years ago and it's just reaching you. Wow. Make you feel small, which you, you should. And then put you in your right place. And these passages like Psalm 19, 1-2 should come flooding in. And you go, thank you, Lord. One of the reasons we feel distant from God and we feel as though He's silent is because we're not listening. We're tuned into other things. Created order speaks. The church speaks. We, we, we studied through Ephesians. We learned in Ephesians chapter 3 verse 10 that the, the church is proclaiming. There is a proclamation in the heavenly places from the gathered church, from people in covenant with one another that speaks about the wisdom of God to the principalities and powers and rulers in heavenly places. Did you know that's happening this morning? Did you know you gathered in unity is speaking a message in the heavenly places? We learn in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 11 to 16 that God has given gifts to the church to equip one another, to build one another up into Christ, into Christian maturity. And those gifts are the apostolic, the prophetic, the evangelistic, the shepherd, and the teaching. So did you know that when you gather in covenant with people that you've agreed to be submissive to and to love and serve together, that God is speaking to you? That He gifts each other for the other? Which is why we encourage you to practice these gifts in your radical life group. I don't have time to go through that, but we call it fivefold, right? These five gifts are given not to pastoral leadership. They are given to the body to build each other up. And God speaks from the body to the body through these gifts as Holy Spirit gifts you for one another. And so God is revealing Himself. But what do we see next in the text? We see response. Verse 2 to 4. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. That must have been awesome. And the house was filled with smoke. Notice there's a response, but I don't think it's important to notice here that the response is first and foremost in the heavenly places. Literally, we see here the seraphim, that's plural for seraph, and a seraph literally is a fiery one. So whatever these things are, they got six wings and they're on fire. That's awesome. And these fiery ones are flying with two wings, two are covering their feet, two covering their face, and notice they're doing something, they're Calling out. This word call out means to proclaim. It means literally, you can blow your mind here, it means to preach. They are preaching back and forth to one another about the glory of God. 
What are they preaching? Holy, holy, holy. They're saying to one another what is accurate and true because they're in the presence of the king of the universe. And they are crying out to one another, holy, holy, holy. That's awesome. Mind blowing. This is the only place in the Bible where God's characteristic, one of his characteristics is mentioned three times. This is even given a special name. I'm not going to say the name because it's like two Christianese scholarship. But it's given a name. And, and, and the only place in the Bible where one of God's characteristics is mentioned three times is this instance. And, and it's on God's holiness, which leads us to understand that his dominant characteristic is holy. Completely other. Completely sinless. Completely perfect. Completely other. Nothing like him. There are no other gods. There are no other ways. There's one God and it's him sitting on the throne, Jesus Christ. And their response, holy, holy, Emmett, holy, Eric, holy, right? Hey, they've seen glory and they can't help it. It just comes out because they've seen the Lord of hosts. And so there's revelation and there's response. And that response is to adore. They adore the Lord. That's what adoration is. It is to speak his glories. You adore the Lord when you speak His glory to someone. When you say, God is so amazingly awesome, let me tell you why. That's glory, that's adoration, that's worship. Notice the response continues, verse 5. Now this, we go from the burning ones, the on fire ones, now to Isaiah. Which is why we say to you, when you join in worship in a gathering... You're not initiating anything. You're just joining the seraphim. This is what's going on constantly. When you sleep, this is happening. So when you see glory, it's not like this amazing thing just happened. It's happening all around you. You've just tuned in long enough to see it. (laughs) And so when you join in, don't think you're just initiating something. This is fresh and new. You know, fresh and new. This is going on right now. And so Isaiah clues in, in verse 5, he responds, and he responds in confession. He said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah responds in confession, woe, literally, it's unfortunate, and that's kind of funny. I read this and I laugh to myself, it's like, very unfortunate. Now, when we see great things, we don't think unfortunate, right? It's because for Isaiah and for these guys in the Old Testament, to see God is to die. God has warned them, you can't come up here. You touch one foot on this mountain and you're going to be shot through. I'm holy. And so they've been taught from Exodus 19, don't do that. And now God has revealed himself to Isaiah. He's seen Jesus, the eternal son of God. And Isaiah's response is, this is really unfortunate. And he says here, notice he says, I'm lost. There's no good English translation for this other than I'm about to die. Lost doesn't do it service. The word literally means to perish. I'm about to die. He knows the scriptures. I've seen God. This is unfortunate. I'm about to die. Notice there's a seriousness about revelation. Don't hear like badness or gloomness or heaviness. Seriousness. Right? Because he just saw God. And he confesses his sin. 
Notice verse 6 and 7. There's response continued. Notice, I think this is important. Note, God doesn't leave us in the confession. He sees the seriousness of his situation. He recognizes who he is and who God is. And then we get verse 6 and 7. Then one of the seraphim, one of the on fire ones, who's singing, and proclaiming back and forth and preaching to one another about God's holiness, flies to him. If a burning creature is flying toward me with a burning coal, I'm running. Just being honest. Isaiah's got enough wherewithal to not run. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. This is beautiful. This is a gospel presentation right in the middle of Isaiah 6. This altar is the place where a substitute sacrifice was made for the sin of the people. And what God built into this system was there would be a substitute that was innocent of the sins of the people, yet they would put their hands on the sacrifice and kill it and take its life and lay it out to be completely consumed before God for their sin to be atoned for. And this angel takes, this seraph takes a coal from this altar and comes at his confession and touches his lips and God says, your sin has been removed. When God reveals Himself, one of the things we recognize is the seriousness of who we are and who God is. I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but if you spend time with the Lord, it's hard to run from your sin. Which is one of the times we don't like to spend time with God because we spend time with God and it usually starts with, I know what I did. And there's this point at which we have to fight to verse 6 and 7 to believe the gospel because there's been a substitute that's been made for you. And that substitute is the eternal Son of God. The one sitting on this throne has come and He's taken on flesh. And He has died for your sin and mine. And He has been buried and He rose and He ascended back to that throne where He generals the great commission and builds His church. And His sacrifice, if we believe, is enough to take our sin away. Past, present, and future. And so as we walk through this rhythm and this flow of revelation response, we need to recognize that when we see who we are and there's a serious component to it, there is also the part of the atonement realized where we have to recognize that God has taken away my sin. And we do what the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 4, we come boldly to the throne of grace. Not flippantly, but boldly. Recognizing who we are, who God is, what He's done, and I'm going to come because you've invited me. And so there's revelation response, revelation response. God reveals himself, there's adoration in response, there's confession in response, and we recognize and believe the gospel as part of our response. Notice verse 8, there's more revelation. God preaches. I don't have time to go through why we preach other than the Bible says to do it. But all through the scriptures, God is the chief preacher. And so God preaches a sermon in verse 8. And you're going to read that sermon and go, why can't you preach those kind of sermons? I would have you know, I've gone from 50 plus minutes to 37 max. And you're like, I'm in rapture. Praise God. Right? Timer. Awesome. But God preaches a sermon. He said, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? God preaches a short sermon. Yet it's a very effective a sermon. I think it's important to note God preaches this sermon with a rhetorical question. 
It's rhetorical because there's not a room full of people. There's one person. It's Isaiah. So God asks a question that only Isaiah can answer. And God reveals Himself. He reveals His purpose. He said, who am I going to send, Isaiah? And I want you to notice the response also in verse 8. Isaiah says, here I am, send me. And so God preaches. And then there's the response of dedication where we say yes to God. We dedicate ourselves to His purposes. We say yes. You never say no to God. You can say no, but it's costly. And if you say yes, it may cost you too. But Jesus said, he who loses his life for my sake will really find it. But if you find life that you think is life at the cost of my purpose, you lose life. Jesus said that. So you can say no, but it'll cost you. If you say yes, it may cost you, but it's life-giving cost. So there's a response of dedicating, yes, Lord, I will go. Then God reveals himself again with a commission in verse 9 and 10. God says, okay, Isaiah, go and say to this people, keep on hearing but do not understand. Keep on seeing but do not perceive. Verse 10, make the heart of this people dull, their ears heavy, blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Notice Isaiah's command, the commission to go, isn't one filled with light and airy ministry success. It's a hard message. And if those words sound familiar, it's because Jesus came preaching this message to his generation. In Luke chapter 4, they drove him up to a hill to throw him off of it because of it. So God gave him a hard message among a hard people. So God commissioned him, go preach this message. And then verse 11, we see Isaiah's response, and that's prayer or supplication. He prays because it's hard. And notice verse 11. Then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste. So Isaiah responds in prayer. Isaiah's mission is hard, so he prays and he asks the Lord his question. So let me ask you this. What does a worship service look like that's built on revelation and response? Let's walk through ours. Number one, you're welcomed by an under-shepherd of Jesus as an act of revelation. It's easy to look at Pastor Jim stepping up here and go, oh, he's, just, he's just saying, hey, how important is that? Everything. Because I want you to know that the reason it's important you get welcomed and that you are here to be welcomed is because God in Christ welcomes you to come. And he says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. God always is beckoning his people to come. And so a welcome just isn't a welcome. It's a task of an under-shepherd representing God to say, welcome. And he stands in the place of Jesus going, come to me. And his role isn't to be taken lightly. It's not something we pass over as unimportant. We just need to get to the preaching or the singing. We need to be ready to hear the voice of the Lord through an under-shepherd say, Welcome. It's not unholy. It's ultimately holy. So we welcome you as God welcomes His people. That's an act of revelation. The second movement And this pattern and this flow is an act of revelation and response combined. We sing a song. 
in response to God welcoming us, we sing to Him truth about Him. So that, that truth is revealing because we're singing true things about God. So it reveals something about God. But we're also responding to the invitation of welcome. The third movement in this pattern is we greet one another as a response of God to love each other and be in unity with each other. So because God has welcomed us to Himself and we've responded in song, we respond to each other by recognizing because of Christ we are unified. Which is why if you can't express that unity, you need to leave. Because there's more at stake than your little individual hurt feeling. There's Sarah from standing in the presence of God crying out to one another, Holy! 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 How dare we walk in here and not recognize the unity of Christ that He's brought us together. And so we speak that peace to one another. Life-giving words. Life and death are in the power of the tongue. You believe that? That's written in the manual. We speak that peace to one another. Movement number four, part of this flow, is we sing a song in response to God's good grace to us in each other. Movement number five, we receive the Lord's Supper as an act of revelation and response. We hear this gospel message. We hear gospel truths from the scriptures and reflections on the bread and the cup. So we hear that truth and then we respond by receiving it, saying we agree with it. And maybe you didn't and you took it anyway and you saw and heard Jesus for the first time and maybe you got saved this morning. Movement number six. We sing a song as a response to God and thanks for the gospel. Many people have always asked, why do you sing your songs after you preach? Because of the pattern of revelation and response. Singing is primarily a response to God, not an initiation to God. So we do the bulk of our singing on the backside of the Lord's Supper and the preached word. So that we've trusted Holy Spirit has worked through those means of grace to speak to your heart, how he needs to speak to. And then we give you the opportunity to respond in song. Movement number seven in this pattern and this flow is we hear a sermon from God's word as an act of revelation, right? In which we trust the spirit of God to speak. Eight, we respond in songs and thanksgivings to God. And number nine, we send you off in an act of dedication in response to God's command that we go make disciples. You ever notice you pay attention? Are you listening to how the pastor blesses you at the end of the service with words from scripture? And he says, three rivers, you are... That's not willy-nilly. That's because God said, go. And so we want you to hear from the mouth of an under-shepherd, go. So the reality is a worship service should be constructed on this revelation and response pattern of Isaiah 6. This service is constructed on the pattern of the life we are to live outside of here. Now, I want to say something here that's very important as we begin to wrap down and close up. Your life won't necessarily follow what necessarily follow the sequential pattern of Isaiah 6, 1 through 11. It will always be revelation and response, but it will be revelation and, res- and response in response to the place you may be. It may be that you've just openly rebelled against God. 
And you feel the hot pursuit of the Holy Spirit calling you to Himself. And you do everything you can to ignore Him. But you hear Him and you know that because you know. You just know and you feel it. And He starts with confession. Right? And recognition of the gospel. And there's this moment where you have to fight the untruths and the lies of legalism that says I need to earn God's favor. So I'll, I'll beat myself up verbally. I'll beat myself up physically to pay for what I did. And the Holy Spirit all the time is going, look at me. And we see Him and we see His holiness and the seriousness. But we see the gospel and we're forced to believe it again that what Jesus did was pay for that sin. So I will come. I'll come. And I'll confess and I'll agree, right? And then there are some times that God reveals Himself and we, we start with, with the adoration. Because things are right. I'm not openly rebellious at this moment. And things I think are pretty good, Lord, other than the fact that my attitude's a little rotten right now, but you're good. Thank you. And we respond in adoration. That's the flow of your life. And it doesn't start with one and work its way to the end neatly through the day. It's back and forth all over that pattern all day long. And when you live your life that way, that's a living sacrifice life. And when you live life like that, then you come in here and this flow of worship begins to take on something that's meaningful. Does that make sense? Which is why this time is holy. Which is why the Bible mandates it. Hebrews 10.25, do not forsake yourselves assembling together. So we end with this. When we gather, it's not just a service to entertain you. It's a time that's patterned after a life of living sacrifice for us to meet with God as His covenant people. But it's also a time where you can bring people with you who need to meet Jesus. Because these, these are divine moments. And your response to God's revelation is key in setting the tone. Last week, I don't know if you noticed or not, but the tone of a room, and the older I get, the more sensitive I am to it. Some of that's wisdom. Some of that's just growing up. Some of it's just growing up into the Lord. Some of it's paying attention to discernment. But sometimes we come in and we're not ready. Because a thousand things have assaulted us on the way here or yesterday or the day before. Or we're expecting to assault us this afternoon or tomorrow. And we come in with the wrong attitude, the wrong mentality. So we need to recognize this is a holy time. It's a time... For us to come and bring something to the Lord. It's also a time for us to come and bring others who need to know. And meet this God who meets us in this place. Like he does in our life daily. Don't live life like it's your own. It's not. Live your life as a worship. As a living sacrifice. Don't treat corporate worship like leftovers. Rather come as a living sacrifice. Prepared to give Jesus something worthy. Something of worth. When you come in here. Give him your absolute best. Give me your absolute best. Not because you have to. But because as a life of living sacrifice, that's what you got to offer is your absolute best. He gets the first. He built this into everything in the Old Testament. What are we supposed to bring? The first of everything. Why? Because he's worthy. <laughs> and so, why do we think that just extends to our money? It's everything. It's how we enter the room. It's how we leave the room. It's how we interact in the middle room. It's whether or not you greet somebody. Do you know greeting somebody is a holy moment of worship? Because God greets you. He's told us to be hospitable. And we're all through the scriptures taught to be hospitable. And we're doing our best to sometimes get away from people. That's not worship. 
Worship is living sacrifice to greet someone with a smile today because Jesus sent you to do it. And you may be the person who leads them to Jesus. You may be the person who leads them to see God high and lifted up because you just simply met them with a smile. And they didn't think God could do that for them. <laughs> so your response now is up to you. What are you going to do with it? Will you respond or will you just arrogantly go, nah, that's not, nah, nah. Will you respond with me? Let's pray. Father, we ask in Jesus' name that you be glorified, be exalted, be lifted high. God, we pray that you would do more again than we can ever imagine in this time. God, I ask that you would uh, truly meet us in this place in power and in might. And that you would pour out on us uh, a measure of your spirit. Uh, Lord, as we can handle uh, I'm afraid of some stuff, uh, but Lord, I want all of you that there is to have. And so God, I pray that you would make our hearts like that this morning, that we would just be ready to receive from you all you'd have to give us. Lord, I pray you'd work in, in a special way in the hearts of your people to draw us closer to you, to, to bring us into more of a living sacrifice kind of life. And uh, God, speak to us, reveal yourself to us and help us to respond well.